on this week's show, I'd like to talk about one of my favorite classic beer styles, and that's Vienna Lager. I have a great guest. His name's Andreas Kremenmeyer, and he is the author of a new book called Vienna Lager. So stick around while we talk all things Vienna Lager on Homebrewing DIY. recipes and taking good notes are two of the key fundamentals of making great beer. This is one of the first things that you learn when becoming a new brewer. I started taking notes on a sheet from my extract kit and then quickly moved to brewing software. I've tried many different types of brewing software and then I found Brewfather. This is the one piece of software that you need for recipes and very detailed brew day notes, as well as fermentation notes. Brewfather also integrates with some of the topics that we discuss on this show, like the till hydrometer, the ice spindle, and ferment track. You need no other piece of software than Brewfather. One of the best parts of Brewfather is that you can try it for free. All you need to do is head to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and click on the Brewfather banner to sign up for free today. Once again, that's homebrewingdiy.beer, and sign up for Brewfather today. Keeping a clean brewery is the key to making great beer that doesn't get contaminated. Do you use a glass or plastic carboy for your fermentation? Did you know that getting your carboy clean can be tough, especially removing the crucin ring? Even with traditional carboy cleaning tools, it can take a lot of time and not get your carboy completely clean. Well, today there's a new tool that can easily clean your carboy and do it fast, and that tool is called a scrubber ducky. Scrubber duckies are a new magnetic carboy cleaner that are easy to use and get the cleaning results required in brewing. Drop a magnetic scrubber into your carboy and be able to scrub away all of the grime in that hard to clean cruisin'. They are no match for scrubber duckies and you can get yours today at scrubberduckies.com. Once again, head over to scrubberduckies.com. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Do you have a subject you want to discuss with listeners? Do you even know where to start? Well, if you want to make a podcast and you want to get started now, I could not recommend Anchor enough. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use right from your phone or computer. Creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Hey, look, I shopped around for a place to post my podcast and Anchor was the easiest, most streamlined experience you could ask for. So if you're looking for a place for your new podcast, Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Once again, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.
And welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on a do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, this podcast covers it all. On today's show, we're talking to Andreas Krenmeier. He's the author of a new book called Vienna Lager, and he's talking to us all the way from Berlin, and we're going to talk about the history of the amazing style of Vienna Lager and ways that you can make one at home. But first, I'd like to thank all of our patrons over at Patreon. It's with because of you that we can bring this show to you week after week. If you'd like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY, and you can give it any amount. Your support helps this show come to you, like I said, week after week. I would also like to say Thank you to all of those who have wrote us reviews. If you head over to Apple Podcasts or Podchaser.com, your review is going to help others find this show. The last way to support the show is to head over to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and use our sponsor links. You There you can find Adventures in Homebrewing, The Brew Bag, or you can even sign up for Brewfather. Your prices all stay the same, but it lets them know that we sent you and they then in turn support the show. So if you're looking at any of those products or even just want to buy a batch of beer, head over to homebrewingdiy.beer and click on our sponsor banners. I have a bit of feedback and I'd like to jump into that now. I have feed I have feedback from Stephen Amrill and he wrote, love the podcast and all of the info, thanks. I have a DIY question and hopefully you can help me. I'm building a 240 volt six gallon system and I'm making a controller with a PID with an SSR. Uh, SSR is a solid state relay. The kettle will have a 3500 watt element and can install a motor speed control to dial down the element when boiling. Is there a better way? Thanks for the advice. And I wrote back saying, hey, Steven, you know, when you are doing something like a PID, you can just set the temperature and it doesn't really matter how hot your element is, it's going to be set to that temperature. Now, I did say that before really looking into the issue, and uh, I want to say now I want to rehash what I said in my response to you. The reason is, is that after talking with my neighbor who has just built a brand new 5,500 watt system with brew blocks, he kind of let me know that what he does is actually turns it down by 50% when he brings it to a boil. So it's not boiling so vigorously. So discard my advice that I gave you in my email. And I would say, look for something to dial that back. One thing that he said is he uses brew blocks and he can actually just use the software to do so. And so in my way of doing it, I would actually prefer if I could do it with a software solution versus a hardware solution. But at that point, that's completely up to you. But yeah, you definitely do want to pull it back so you can get the boil to the level you want so it's not as vigorous when you're trying to hit that number. So that is the feedback I have from Steven and I hope that it helps. Other than that, I don't have much going on in the brewery. I did keg my three-gallon batch of mead that I made. I did a very low alcohol mead, think like seven or eight percent. And then I'm gonna I put it in a keg and I'm gonna make it a sparkling mead and you know, have my wife drink it. Uh, so far she's she said that she's uh, actually gonna drink it and she doesn't really drink my beer so uh, I'm excited to have made something that my wife will actually drink so that's always an exciting thing here at the Wilson house 
Well, other than that, let's jump into today's episode where we're going to talk to Andreas about his new book, Vienna Lager. I'd like to welcome Andreas Krenmeier to the show. He's written a new wonderful book about the history and the process of Vienna Lager. I'd like to welcome to Homebrewing DIY. Hi, Andreas. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, adjusting time zones and figuring out a great time to talk to me. We're uh, talking to him all the way. You're in Berlin, is that correct? That's, That's right, yeah. Well, I, I know that's a big time difference, and thanks for making accommodations to be on my podcast. I, I'd like to maybe start off talking about your history with brewing and how you found such a love for Vienna Lager. Hmm. My history with, with uh, brewing or uh, like home brewing specifically started actually uh, about a year after I met my now wife. Um, I don't exactly remember what the original motivation was, but at some point we just decided, okay, let's 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 try and make a fermented beverage of some kind. And uh, we we first came up with cider. Um, so we, we we got some some uh, apples. Um, it was the right season. Um, got a press, made cider. The result was fantastic. And then my wife said, "Hmm, why 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 don't we try beer?" Um, and that, that's that's how we got into into home brewing and. Um, that was in let me think end of end of 2012 and uh, i've been i've been brewing since then quite quite regularly and you did you start off with like extract brewing and move into obviously you started with cider but did you start mm. when you started brewing beer was it extract and then moved into all grain or did you just take the dive and go right into all grain mm. no i i i looked at what uh Homebrewers in Germany uh, were, were typically doing, um, and what was actually pretty common was um, getting getting like an uh, electric cooker that holds about thirty liters. So thirty liters is, I think, roughly seven and a half gallons or so. Um, and and a lot of people uh, use that, um, use it in like a, a brewing a bag kind of way. Um, but but a lot of people start off with with all grain straight away, um, and that's what I did as well. I I simply looked up a a simple recipe. Um, um, I, I bought myself a, a book with a, a very basic explanation in, in German, how to brew at home, um, got myself the ingredients, um, and, and, um, and, and of course, a fermenter, um, and, and then just started. And the, the result wasn't too bad. That, that's awesome. Was your first beer a Vienna Lager? That's the question. N- not at all. It was a. <laughs> oh God, it, it was. It was. It was from 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 a horrible German website that I don't think exists anymore. It was advertised like a a, a Bass Pale Ale gl- clone, but it was like in retrospect, it was all wrong. It was. Um. It was. It was a a, a Vienna Lager. Uh, sorry, Vienna Malt base. Um. I think about ninety percent, and then then a. a uh, some some caramel malts and I, I as hops I simply chose East Kent Goldings as and as yeast I chose London Ale Three so you could you could say it's it's it it was kind of an English ale but with with a with a, a Vienna Lager influence that I didn't know about at that time. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a lot of first beers. Uh, I'll admit my my first beer was a extract beer, but very very similar <laughs> in the fact that. 
you know, it, it actually took me three years to get through that batch and not because I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was beer and I was very happy and proud of myself mm. that first time. But yeah. Uh, so uh, let, let's talk a bit about how you found Vienna loggers and, and how you truly, maybe a history of like how you fell in love with this style. Um, so it, it started off with me basically just, you know, at some at, at, at some phase you just uh, um, you just get nerdy and you start reading more and more. And I uh, came across, you know, BJCP style guidelines um, and uh, kept reading about all these different styles and read uh, like Vienna Lager. And I, as I'm so I'm I'm originally from Austria, um, and so I thought, hmm. This this is, is is described as like an originally Austrian beer style. How how do I not know about that? Um, and so I just just uh, kept kept searching um, and r- realized okay this this is a a beer style that that used to be common doesn't exist anymore in, in Austria at that time basically no one knew about it. Um, and then I at, at at some point I think twenty twenty fifteen. I also decided to like write a bit about my my home brewings. I started a blog, um, and I, I basically started documenting um, what I'd what I'd found out, like from a from a historic perspective, um, but also my um, like my my practical home brewing experience. Um, it was vienna lager was one of my first it was not the first but i think my my second lager that i that i brewed at home um just came up with a with a normal recipe um i think i think i put it uh, i think it's the one that i put in my my book as well um and it 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 turned out to be pretty good um and it was a very very drinkable um beer in the end um uh, with it with a lot more complexity than your your standard like pale lagers even the ones even the pretty good ones in in, in Germany, um, and I, I really yeah just enjoyed the style, um, and I I just kept looking more and more into the into the whole history. Um, that's that's how me falling in love with Vienna Lager started. Yeah, and I'll I'll admit that Vienna Lager was also one of my first lagers that I ever made personally, and is one of my personal favorite lager styles. I I love the 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 maltiness yet the lightness of the of the style, and and it's really unique to the Vienna Lager. Uh, it 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 can and and it's the odd thing is is that it can be a little bit of light, it can be a little bit of dark, at least and still fall within the style guidelines, but mm. it, it's definitely a beer that has body yet crispness that I feel is something that's unique to the Vienna lager. If you were to describe a Vienna lager as far as stylistically and what you would think a good example would look like if I were a home brewer, what does that look like to you? I I would say, um, I would say that the most important bit about it is, is, uh, Drinkability, so it, it it needs it like at least the modern version of it should be should be just optimized for for being really enjoyed um, as several beers over an evening. Um, I, th- I think the 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 malt should be should be very prominent um, because it's it is what what what's uh, like so specific or so typical for the for the style. Um, the the Vienna malt, and I think that this particular malt character, this this like 
toasted maltiness um, that's at the same time not sweet and not overwhelming. Things should be should be there in the foreground. Um, hop wise, um, I think it should be at least enough to balance it out to to take away like any like or or if if there's any like residual sweetness, it should at least balance it out. Um, maybe add some some aroma um uh, like to 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 add some complexity um or or to 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 add an additional layer of of flavor and aroma um and yeah just just have a have a like a a, a medium bitter beer um personally i i prefer it actually a, a bit more on the bitter side so that I think can be can be quite quite good as well. It doesn't need to be quite as quite as aromatic or or hop forward like uh, like a, a Czech Pilsner or something like that, though. Yeah, the Czech Pilsner can be very very hop forward. It, mm. It's it's it is crisp in the end, but still very hoppy style. Mm. And and I agree with you. I think that my favorite Vienna lagers out there really showcase the malt, the the Vienna malt itself, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that. Which is also, I, I will tell you, one of my secret hacks to pretty much all making a good lager in general is sneak a little Vienna in there. Just always makes a great <laughs> lager. Uh, but uh, it, it is something where I I love the showcase of that malt particularly because it's so wonderful. If you were to... Uh, and also the history of the Vienna lager is something that is intriguing to me. And if you, anybody who listens to this podcast knows i am a huge fan of beer history in general i i i would say that if you were to ask me what books i i would read about beer they tend to be less technical which is weird this is tends to be a more technical podcast but i like to read more about the history of beer and how we kind of got here today love farmhouse ales i love the the history of of particular beer styles and how we got here today and and that's why your book really stood out to me and as soon as i saw that you had written it i went and and downloaded a copy Uh, i will admit i haven't finished it yet I, i i'm i tend to go slow on a book but my question would be the history is always in particular to me something that is uh, that stands out specific to styles. Why don't you talk a bit about the unique history of the the Vienna Lager, particularly? Mm. Okay, so um, the the I, w- I would say what what is what is quite unique for for the Vienna Lager beer style is that unlike most other historic beer styles, you you can pretty much exactly pinpoint at uh where it was created um how it was created and, and under which circumstances that that happened so the and, and the, usually what brewery was the first to make it if it's a, a european style or an american yeah, style, right yeah 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 um so it, it it started off with um with this this brewer's son in in austria uh anton Dreher. um his his father uh was a I would say reasonably successful local brewer um, in and around Vienna. So he um, he was actually from from Swabia, from from the uh, south southwest of, of Germany, but had uh, uh, moved moved to Austria in the in the eighteenth century, um, and ran a total of I think it was three three brew houses, and the the last one um, was was basically the one he settled on that he that he owned outright. 
Um, then he he died when Anton Drea was was uh, quite young. So the the mother took it over, rented it out to to relatives who were brewing, you know, just just on a on a fairly small scale. Um, but uh, Anton Drea was still uh, meant to take over eventually, meant to take over the business eventually. Um, and so he was he was trained um, as as a as a brewer as well. And the tradition then then was to go to other breweries to learn it there, and um, and then. Uh, afterwards to maybe have like a journeyman years where you would travel to uh, more breweries uh, across the country or even in other countries to um, uh, to look at how they were working there um, and to to learn more and to broaden your horizon and so he did his apprenticeship in a, in another brewery on the outskirts of Vienna in in Simmering um, which is now a, a, a district of, of Vienna itself um, and he there there he met uh, Gabriel Siedlmeier, who was the uh, the son of the then Spaten Brewery in in Munich, um, and they 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 got along really well, and they um, basically uh, formed formed a, a pretty close friendship. Um, and even though uh, Gabriel Siedlmeier was just basically just passing through, um, because he was he was on a journey where he was going like um, all the way through Austria and then uh, up. To, um, through what is now the Czech Republic and then um, Prussia um, to, um, to to learn things how they were done in Berlin, um, but they, they they kept in touch and they they came up with a plan. Okay, let's let's go to uh, to the UK, to England and Scotland to look at, um, at how they were brewing there, um, and so they they did that uh, in in eighteen thirty three. They went together with with uh, two more friends uh, of of theirs, also sons of of brewers um, from Brauna, which is in, in Upper Austria, and from Nuremberg uh, in, in Bavaria. Um, and they yeah, uh, were, were absolutely astonished um, about how, how technical and industrial brewing was uh, in, in, the, in the UK. Um, and they, they, they basically uh, learned two big things. One was the use, the proper use of a, a sacrometer. Um, so they, they uh, they they took sacrometers. Uh, they they bought sacrometers. They were taught how to use them. Uh, they were taught about what attenuation is, <laughs> which was a, a fairly fairly new concept um, for 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 uh, brewers um, back back then in in continental Europe. Um, and but they also learned uh, about uh, British malting techniques, um, how to uh, properly let. Your, your barley sprout during the whole uh, malting process and um, how to how to dry it in a in a way that it remains fairly pale um, uh, and and uh, very consistent um, and yeah they, they these these are the the techniques that they basically took with them um, and when they then went back uh, to Munich, um, as did Gabriel Siedlmeier and, and Vienna, they they started using them as much as that was possible. So Gabriel Siedlmeier specifically introduced the sacrometer uh, at his brewery, which was uh, uh, quite um, uh, quite quite a novel thing in in Bavaria, and it was um, it was actually something that that was uh, kept like that particular type of sacrometer. It was called a long. Uh, sacrometer uh, was used uh, at the Spatenbrühe until the 1870s, whereas um, what what Antondrea did um, when when uh, he came back, um, he 
decided um, as soon as he was able to to take over the brewery, um, he would improve um, things on the, on the malting side. Um, and then in, in 1836, uh, uh, he was finally able, or he he, he had enough uh, funds to to be able to uh, first rent the the brewery from his from his mother, um, and then he he was able to like start start his own actual beer. Um, at that time, it was still um, top fermented beer, um, as was uh, usual in in Vienna um, or in like the that part of Austria uh, generally at the time. Um, but he he made some some uh, huge improvements on the on the malt side. So he produced produced a fairly pale malt. Um, it's not a hundred percent clear whether that was quite as pale as Vienna malt, um, but it, it was definitely a, a very very clean, uh, smoke free but still kiln malt. Um, and the the resulting beer he he called it Kaiser beer, so the the emperor's beer. Of course, you know that it wasn't an, an endorsement from 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 the Austrian emperor, but um, it, it was a it was a a, a very successful beer. Um, and he that that was basically what he was then then brewing uh, during the summer. Um, but then he also um, asked Gabriel Sedlmayr, uh, "Hey, can can I use your or can I have a sample of your your uh, local?" Uh, bottom fermenting yeast that you that you have in in at the Spaten Brewery and Gabriel Silmeyer was was super open about sharing his yeast um, and so he sent him a sample and then um, around 1836 1837 um, Andrea started brewing uh, top fermented uh, beers uh, um, at at his own brewery and and sold that beer during the winter. You, um, you mean? Bottom fermented beers, right? Uh, sorry, bottom from, yes. Uh, sorry, bottom. He, he uh, brewed and sold bottom fermented beers uh, during the winter from from his brewery. Um, One thing I want to kind of point out here: so, if mm. you're a new brewer and listening to the show. One thing that to point out here is the difference between a top fermented beer and a bottom fermented beer is specifically the type of yeast, and that type of yeast is is the difference really between a lager yeast at the and an ale yeast, right? And so hmm. the 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 top fermented beers can be fermented at warmer temperatures, whereas that uh, that that lager yeast has to be fermented at a at that that cooler temperature, and it gets that bottom fermenting process, correct? Yeah, that's that's right. Um, the the um, ironic thing is, um, people at that time didn't exactly know about these details, but they they did know, or they they did have certain practices about uh, top and bottom fermenting yeast, and that was how the how the yeast was harvested. So that the um, the, the top fermented yeasts were were skimmed from from the top of the still fermenting beers, whereas the, the the bottom fermenting yeasts were were taken from from the bottom of the fermenter after the end of, of fermentation, um, and um, of course this you you couldn't just uh, turn a, um, a, a an ale yeast into a into a, a lager yeast by just taking it uh, from from the bottom of fermenter, but it was just um, different uh different techniques um and uh, people knew that's that's how you were meant to harvest your yeast um whenever it was a a, a cool fermenting um, um bottom uh fermenting yeast yeah it's and it's kind of crazy 
if if you've gotten into loggers at all, that you do see the difference. If you have a clear fermenter, you can see the action kind of happening in the two different places. Mm. It's it's really cool. Uh, mm. Yeah. So uh, a bit back to the history, he started making these bottom fermented beers, and what mm. was the how how was how were they received? Oh, the, it was it was an absolute uh, hit. Like a. a it there there is one there is one letter um that Antondria sent sent to Gabriel Silmeyer where he he specifically says yeah um my business is growing because of my bottom fermented beers um because they're they're so successful in it and at, at some point he was worried there is there's so much more demand than he can possibly brew um and and he he didn't know how to how to deal with that at all um so what what he did uh, uh, do at some point um, was he he got uh, his his own lagering cellars. So uh, from from thirty six thirty seven until uh, eighteen forty, he actually did not have any space to properly lager to properly mature any of his beers. So it was always after the end of fermentation um, uh, put in put in wooden barrels, sent out to 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 the pubs and inns, um, and they then had to keep it in in their own cellar. Um, but then in in eighteen forty, um, his neighbor um, started renting out uh, his his wine cellar, um, and so Antonio decided, okay, this this is the right time. Um, he he started renting it, um, started lagering beer, um, also started lagering beer uh, in the cellar of his his private home. Um, and then um, after after it was in, matured properly, um, he he started selling that, and that was like an even even better product. And that that was in in 1841, and that was the the proper start of the Vienna Lager. Before that, it was it was a a bottom fermented beer um, where it wasn't quite clear how long uh, it was actually lagered matured. Um, but from from eighteen forty one on, um, that's that's when the lagering really started, and that's like when when the whole expansion um, on the on the lager cellar side um, uh, really took off. So, with within two years, he he built absolutely massive lagering cellars and, and just kept expanding, expanding, expanding. And, and how did the Vienna Lager kind of spread across the region after that? Obviously, we have this one brewer who's making this style. How how did it become kind of the style it is today, if that makes any sense? Mm. So there, there, there was an interesting effect. Um, a, a lot of the local breweries um, around Vienna noticed. Okay, this is a this is a very successful beer, um, and they initially started uh, imitating that, um, and and. So, so there, there was an interesting effect that is essentially within within a time frame of about five years, uh, most of the local breweries in in Vienna uh, switched from from top to bottom fermentation, um, and just just became this this really popular style. Um, it it then spread all over um, Austria. Um, uh, it it in in fact like the this this whole um, this this whole change in in beer um or like the the introduction of a, of a beer of a completely new quality um that that was fa- fairly pale um clear um and um just just tasted clean um uh, 
yeah, how, how should I say it? It like it 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 completely changed the social standing of of beer as a drink itself, which was a, a like a, a, a before there was more a drink for the lower uh, classes, um, but um, but since this had improved in quality so much, um, people even of like higher classes uh, um, would would start drinking that and it, it, like beer as as a drink really took off. Um, and b- before that, it was really um, wine that was that was more popular. But that 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 changed in the eighteen eighteen forties eighteen fifties drastically. Yeah. And, and you could almost take that same story and put it with lots of styles when it comes to, like, for example, if we want to look at this in modern day history, and this is in the United States, but if you look at the hazy IPA, five years ago, this was a beer that essentially didn't exist except for maybe one brewery, you know, the Heady Topper or, or something. You you could come to a hand or treehouse, a small handful of breweries that were making these hazy type IPAs. And now you can't throw a dead cat anywhere in the United States and not hit a, a hazy IPA at a brewery, right? It, it's mm. the, the imitation has become a style unto its own, even though it, at one point it was just one brewer or a small set of breweries that were making that. Mm. And it's funny to see like that happen in real time, at least in a modern sense. Right. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't have the, 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 the best insight into the American market, but um, what I've been told by friends uh, it's, it's IPAs everywhere. Allegedly. Uh, um, I, I've been, I've been to the U S only once and that was in uh in summer 2011, where um, I visited a friend of mine in, who was who was working in in New York at that time, um, I do remember a lot of craft beer. I remember seeing quite a few IPAs, and it, it was something that intrigued me a lot because I, I didn't know a whole lot of stuff about uh, like craft beers uh, back then. Um, uh, but it, it wasn't as extreme as people tell me how it is nowadays, where. There, that there are some like tap rooms or bars that mostly have IPA taps, which is yeah. which is kind of crazy, but speaks for the popularity of of the style. Well, and the IPA of 2011 is very different than the IPA of 2020, right? In 2011, they were very bitter, bitter bombs. Uh, people shooting for 100 IBUs was like a goal. <laughs> and now <laughs> they're the big juice bombs where you're looking for these hazy, uh, juicy type and and a lot more hops are going into them pounds of hops i, I think i've i have a friend that owns a brewery here in colorado that he's making a, a, his extra juicy bits ipa is now coming with 10 ounces of hops per barrel i mean sorry 10 uh the, the equivalent of 10 ounces of hops per gallon if you were to do it on a homebrew scale it's okay. it's kind of amazing the amount of hops that are going into beers now uh, but i'm 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 I'm, 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 t- I'm just trying to understand how much it is uh, ten, 10 ounces is uh, to, uh, so, so, yeah, to 280 grams yep. per less than four liters yeah that's 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 oh, that, that's just crazy <laughs> yeah yeah sorry i i forget i'm talking to you european and i and we're the weird ones that are still on the uh the, the imperial scale uh but yeah so back to vienna lager and talking about it you know, in a more modern sense, I, I know that, like, for example, if you were to go to the BJCP guidelines right now and look for classic examples of Vienna Lager, Negra Medella, which is a Mexican beer, is on that list. Hmm. How did Vienna Lager travel from Vienna and end up in Mexico? Um, it 
most likely didn't uh, quite in the way um, how it's uh, how, how it's often narrated. Um, so that, that that was actually something that interested me a lot um, because I was I was looking at at, at previous literature um, and and you 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 find you you find books or or article um, that that mentions as a suppo supposed uh, migration of Austrian Boers um, uh, to to Mexico during the the reign of the of the the, the Mexican king in in, in the eighteen sixties who was originally from from Austria. Um, and I've, I've looked into that and I haven't been able to, to find anything, anything substantial. Um, so I've, I've really written that off to, to, to be a myth. Uh, but what I found at the same time was that in the, in the, uh, at least from the 1870s onwards, um, Vienna Lager was a fairly popular style in the United States itself. Um, a lot of, a lot of, uh, like, uh, German American lager breweries, um, brewed and and sold uh, Vienna Lager, and I've I found literally dozens of of examples. Um, and some of them, the at that time, the the, the biggest lager breweries um in 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 the U.S. like um Schlitz and and, and Blatz um uh, like both both uh, well known like Milwaukee breweries um. They they had a Vienna Lager of some sorts, and that was that was like in the in the late nineteenth century. Um, and I, I I think that's that's how the style really um, really really kept surviving um, because it was something that that must have been around for people in the U.S. from the eighteen seventies up to Prohibition, and then even even after Prohibition, a few breweries picked up the, the the style again. You you can find it in in promotional material. Um, of of um, uh, malting companies, um, you can you can find beers like from for example Coors had a um, had a, an export lager um, which they they described as a Viennese type beer, um, and uh, that's that's I think how how the the style really got into got into uh, people's minds. Um, whereas la, la, like on the on the lager brewing side in in Mexico. They they did not start brewing lager until um, really the the, the mid eighteen eighties, um, where even like the the a lot of the, the even the early breweries didn't start before the eighteen nineties. Um, some of them, or what we know about them, what they started brewing initially was um, was a, a very pale lager that that did use like local ingredients. But there, there is no specific indication that would that that would be, um, like specifically brewed like a Vienna Lager. Um, they they did pick up different lager styles um, in the end. I mean, we 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 do see that now with like Negro Modelo or uh, that the Dos Equis Ambar or the uh, Victoria, um, which even like says on the on the on the bottle. Um, that it's of of Vienna type, um, so they they did pick up these 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 lager styles um, eventually, um, and and made them made them their own um, and and made the whole like Mexican lager scene um, a, 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 a quite quite diverse one in in terms of styles, um, but I, I I don't I don't think the the attribution of of uh, Mexican or Vienna Lager in Mexico um, being the, the the main reason why the why the style survived, that this attribution is is 
uh, really correct. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And if you get one, it just an example would be if you get a European version of the Vienna Lager, it is very mm. different than a Mexican version. They yeah. do not. They, they, they stylistically may have some similarities, but they are definitely not the same, right? Mm. Yeah. Again, in the, in the research phase for my, beer, uh, for my book, uh, I tried out um, a, a few beers, including a few, a few Mexican ones, and they, uh, you, you do taste like certain hints, certain notes that, that remind you of something that could be a Vienna Lager. Um, but it's, but it's, uh, it's, it's all a lot more subtle. Um, and uh, even with the Negro Modelo, I, I, I think that's, that's probably closer to like a, a Munich Dunkel. Um, but even, even that is like, is, is not exactly the same um, and, and has taken on its, its own form. Um, it, it's, its own, uh, like uh, interpretation of the style that makes it, I mean, dis distinctly Mexican in some way. Yeah. Uh, one thing I w am curious about, and just talking to you now, you you talked a bit about the research phase of your book. What mm -hmm. what did that research phase look like? You're you're digging into the history of a specific style. How how did you track this all down? Um. So it 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 all started. Or the, the, the initial uh, point um, was um, me just blogging about it. Um, and it was just casual, like searching through some historic sources that I, that I knew about. So I, I'd, I'd read, I had read quite a lot of stuff from, from Ron Pattison, who has an, an, an absolutely amazing blog about beer history. Um, it's called the Shut, Shut, Up, Shut Up About Barclay Perkins. Um, so th that, that is a great source um, for, for a lot of things. Um, he has quite a, quite a few um, articles about Vienna Lager. He also had um, several books um, related to, to lager brewing, um, of which I have a few at home. Um, and so I, I'm, I started looking into into what he had um, in terms of uh, like historic resources um, about Vienna Lager, and I um, I found um, a, a specification of, of original and final gravity, um, and that's that's what started off. And then I, I started looking into um, like what what else could I find um, about the style um, in in archives. Um, like I, I used, I used archive.org. I used Google books. There are, there are lots of like digital libraries, um, uh, of, of, uh, German universities, for example, where you, where you can find a lot of stuff. I used, uh, uh, a, an archive of historic newspapers of Austrian historic newspapers, um, um, that was fully indexed and you, you, you find in, incredible, um, in, incredible stuff in there. Um, so I, I basically went through a lot of um, a lot of just just openly available uh, sources, um, libraries, archives, whatever was was like searchable, um, and I, I I just worked my way through it, um, and it did take quite a long time to really really find what I wanted to find and to really put together the pieces. Um, there there were some some specific sources that I could not find online at all. So I, I had to go uh, to uh, a library that is uh, specialized on, on beer history. So I'm, I'm very I'm very blessed to to be in Berlin because there's the um, like a, a, a research beer research uh, laboratory called the, the VLB, um, and they have 
associated with them, um, like an, an, a beer history organization. Um, and they have a, an extensive library of, of uh, really lots, lots of books that you wouldn't find in, in many other places. And it's, it's freely accessible. So I just, just went there, um, looked up uh, what books they have that could be uh, interesting, um, copied what I, what I needed, and then, then worked with that. Uh, that's a, and how 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 long did it take you to actually put this book together? When would you say you started the project? And obviously, we know that you just released it. So, mm. uh, it 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 took roughly, I would say, one and a half years. Um, I started off with collecting sources first, and then writing a first draft, and then thinking, hmm, this this is really not enough, and I I can do um, uh, things better, and then I just kept searching about like very specific individual topics um whether there was more that i could find and just kept expanding and it just just kept growing um it wasn't it wasn't a thing where i where i uh, put a, a clear plan together in the beginning and then then just writing it from from big from beginning to finish but I, it was it was a lot of uh, just researching more whenever i wasn't happy with with something and then um yeah, uh, going back and and uh, improving and and really slowly, but but uh, continuously uh, expanding the book. And if I were a home brewer listening to the show right now, and I wanted to, you know, take a stab at a Vienna Lager, could you give me just a quick like, hey, here's a, a really easy recipe to maybe start with? You know, break that down for me. Okay, then possibly the, the the easiest recipe that you can do is uh, to brew a Vienna Lager as a as a smash beer. Um, and I think that that also um, is very much in the in the tradition of of Vienna Lager that you that you just use a hundred percent Vienna malt, um, uh, just use uh, a, a single type of of hops, um, and then it's it's a question what's 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 the easiest for you in terms of in terms of mashing? So I think what's what's quite appropriate for the style is to do um, at least some 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 step mash of some sorts. Um, it's pro- probably um, reasonably easy for for people to do um, and not too scary. Um, I think that's also important to point out um, to do a, a infusion step mash um, and and uh, then 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 just go with that. What what um, what I personally um, do, though, with with most of my lagers nowadays, um, is is to do a, a decoction mashing, which is the the really traditional um, way of brewing Vienna lager. That's that's what they originally did, and where Anton Dreher also said, like he he considered that to be the the, the highest form of of mashing, um, and um, it was one of those techniques that he also um, adapted from. Um, from from his friend Gabriel Siedlmeier from from uh, like this this whole Bavarian um, brewing technique, um, so yeah, pick pick a pick a, a way of mashing um, as you like and then pr- uh, pr- produce your wort and then um, on on the on the hop side, um, I, I would say a, a, like any any uh, European noble hops are perfectly fine. Um, what was historically uh, appropriate uh, are uh, Czech Sartz hops, um, and then go for something like twenty-five to thirty IBUs, um, mostly bittering, maybe a bit of aroma, however you like, um, 
and and then yeah ferment the beer as a la, as a lager and i think i think that should that that should get you something that's that's pretty good and a, and a pretty authentic vienna lager yeah and and you talked about that uh traditionally the decoction action if you're making a, a vienna lager today are you doing a, a single double triple decoction uh and we're talking about you so yeah <laughs> so uh, me personally, I use a, a specific double decoction uh, mesh, so um, it's it's one that's that that is that is uh, almost as intense as a triple decoction. Um, but the the disadvantage with triple decoction meshing is that you you can have very long protein rests, um, and so that that uh, is is quite poor on on foam stability. So what I do is I I mesh in low, um, and then pull. Uh, my my first decoction as 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 very big like almost two thirds of of the whole mesh. Um, oh wow, that's and, and, a big decoction. Yeah, that is. Yeah, large. it's 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 massive, um, but it's it it really helps me not not just uh, boosts um, like uh, extract efficiency, um, but I, I can I can uh, do things like on on my first decoction I can do a rest at. Seven uh, about seventy degrees Celsius. I don't know how much that is in Fahrenheit. So basically, I can do a quick sacrification rest and then go up to the full boil. So I, I can I ha I can basically um, boil and and almost fully convert it uh, um, mash and then mix it back. Um, and I can you know mix back just just part of it so that I can do a, a very short protein rest and then mix back the rest to, to get to my to my first sacrification temperature. And then I, then I pull um, a, a, a thin decoction um, to get to, to, my, um, uh, to, to my second temperature. Um, and that, that, that works really well. And uh, I've, I've, uh, I found the resulting beers, they, they um, seem to have a good like, decoction character, um, still have very good um, foam stability, um, the word is really clear. Um, I've got fantastic <laughs> extract efficiency compared to my to, compared to my infusion meshes, so um, I'm I'm super happy with that technique. It it is quite energy. Uh, uh, it, it uses up a lot of energy and it uses up a lot of time. <laughs> um, that's that's the downside yeah. of it, but um, yep. but the result is great, I think. Yeah, I I've done some decoction mashing uh i've done a single and double decoction with uh, uh some lager beers that i've done and that turns it easily into an eight to ten hour brew day just because mm. of the time and just for listeners uh 70c is 158 fahrenheit just so you know okay uh, yeah so and, and so the idea is that uh yeah, a decoction does make for a longer day, but I can tell you that there there is a difference, at least in the beers that I've done decoctions on, specifically in the body of the malt and the mm. flavor of the malt. Uh, that that's at least what I I see in in the beers that I do decoctions on, and I I, I think that specifically when I think of the style Vienna Lager, it, it just it, it speaks to me personally that it has a decoction into it. It just it, that that to me feels stylistically correct. I, and, mm call it a gut feeling but you know <laughs> yeah I've, i mean i've i've uh, i've seen um i've seen research papers that show um it's actually not that not not that easy to like sensorically detect um like a specific decoction character um so some some people say okay it it doesn't really make a make a whole lot of sense but then um uh 
you know, we, we, we're not, as, as homebrewers, I think we're not doing it to, to try out as many shortcuts as we can. Um, but uh, um, at, le at least that's my motivation. I want to I wanna brew something that I'm really proud of, that I, that I really enjoy. And I can also say I, I have, I've used the, the, the historically correct process for, the, for that, um, even, if it was, even if it was not, you know, 100% necessary. Um, I also think that homebrewing is, a, you know, I, I, I consider myself very science-minded. And but I also think homebrewing is a, is, a, is a lot of science, but it's also mixed with some voodoo in there, right? There's a, <laughs> there, there's definitely some dogma and religion in there, and uh, it's that's kind of part of the fun is trying to discern w what's worth keeping and what's worth throwing away. That, mm. That's all. That's all part of the process. That's that's homebrewing right mm. there. <laughs> mm. Well, I want to I want to thank you, Andreas, for taking the time to come on the show. Why Why don't you'd give us a bit if i were to want to look at your book or to purchase it uh, i would go to amazon and search for vienna lager the book correct exactly um i'm i'm selling that book um uh, exclusively through amazon um because it's a, it's a, for for uh, like self publishers like me uh, it's it's fantastic so you just go to amazon search for vienna lager it should be the the the, the first hit um and so um you, you can buy it just uh, through there. It's available as, a, as an ebook um, for Kindle, but it's also um, available as a, as a printed book. Um, so whichever um, people prefer. Um, I, I think the, 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 the printed book itself is, is, is beautiful. So um, I have it in front of me. I, have, I, I put in a few pictures that I think um, are, are great um, around the whole uh, history of, of Vienna Lager. Um, and, and I'm, Particularly proud of the of the cover. So I've I've, um, I've designed it. Um, I've I've designed it like the the street signs um, of Vienna, and as a background, I've used the historic map of the the inner city of Vienna, which um, I think really nicely sets the mood for the for the whole book. That's awesome, and and I'll also put the show notes into the. Uh, I'll also put the link to the book in the show notes, so that if <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, just scroll down on your podcast player, and you'll have a link right to it on Amazon. Uh, definitely a book worth checking out. Uh, I've bought a copy. I have it on my Kindle, and uh, maybe I'm going to have to go buy an actual physical copy because I love a good <laughs> physical beer book. I, I'm I'm a geek like that. But uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. If there's ever another book that you've that you've written, I'm sure you've got other projects in the future. You're probably already thinking about your next book you're going to write. And when you do, please, I'd love to have you back on the show. Mm. Yeah, but th thanks, thanks for having me. Um, I always love talking about Vienna Lager, and um, it's 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 something. It's it's a topic that is that is really uh, close to my heart, and where, where I'm really enthusiastic, and I'm 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 happy about uh, anybody attempting to brew a Vienna Lager um, and, and playing around with the style. Awesome. Well, thank you. I'd like to thank Andreas for coming on this week's show. I feel like every time I have a beer author... I just learned so much about the history of a specific style or a type of beer. And I don't know about you guys who are listening, but this is something that really excites me. And I just love beer history. That being said, you can always find us on social media. You can head over to 
homebrewingdiy.beer, all one weird word on Twitter, Instagram, or you can also find us on Facebook. And also just if you want to head over to the website, homebrewingdiy.beer, just go to the contact us tab and you can then also fill out the form there and get in contact with us as well. Or if you just want to give us some feedback via email, you can email us podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer. Well, that's it for this week. And we'll talk to you next week on Homebrewing DIY. Mm-hmm.